Hey friends, welcome to Worry Less, Wag More. This is the Behavior Bets Podcast. I'm your host, Ferdy Yao. Join me to dive into the thrills and challenges of treating pet behavior issues. I'll shine a light on science-based training that's effective and brings us closer to understanding the animals we share our lives with. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Uh, we have uh, a special co-host today, my colleague Lauren Novak. We are both very excited today for our guest. Uh, and Lauren, uh, why don't you introduce our guest so today? So our guest, who's very, very special, and I am smiling ear to ear, really big grins because I'm so excited about this, is Dr. Erica Feuerbacher. She's an associate professor in animal and poultry sciences at Virginia Tech, and she's also the director of the Applied Animal Behavior and Welfare Lab, where she focuses her research on dogs and horses. She also coordinates the online master's program in Applied Animal Behavior and Welfare at Virginia Tech. Erica earned her PhD in psychology at the University of Florida in the UF Canine Cognition and Behavior Lab and her master's in behavior analysis at the University of North Texas in the Organization for Reinforcement Contingencies with Animals. She is a certified applied animal behaviorist, a board-certified behavior analyst, and a certified professional dog trainer. Her research and publications focus on understanding domestic animal behavior and learning from a behavior analytic perspective, using applied animal behavior to solve behavioral issues in dogs and horses, and identifying interventions that approve shelter dog welfare. She is passionate about humane, effective animal training and working with owners, trainers, and shelter staff to improve our interactions with animals. Dr. Feuerbacher, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Ferdy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to speak to both Yay. of you today. Um, so before we get started, even though I just read the bio for everyone, I would like to clarify for our audience what your different credentials mean. You are a board certified behavior analyst and a certified applied animal behaviorist. And the requirements for those two titles are very, very different. First, it's impossible to become a BCBA doing animal work. You have to complete a full program in applied behavior analysis and work with humans for a minimum number of hours before you can sit for the exam. It's um, 2,000 hours now, which is why I am not sitting for the exam, because I just don't have it in my schedule to do 2,000 hours of work with humans um, <laughs> on top of everything else. And to become a CAB, a Certified Applied Animal Behaviorist, the academic requirements um, include animal coursework, specifically a minimum number of credits in ethology, as well as years of experience working with a particular species, plus publishing original research with animals. So having both credentials is a huge and very rare accomplishment. And at times, those two distinctions can really contradict each other. So I think it would be helpful to our audience to know first how you pulled this off, um, who your biggest academic influences are, if you consider yourself a radical behaviorist, an applied ethologist, or something else entirely, and how you identify in terms of philosophy and approach. Sure. Yeah, they they are very, um, like you said, uh, different credentials. Um, so my background before getting to be into behavior analysis was biology, and I did a lot of um, uh, behavioral ecology and neurophysiology. So I, I um, 
earned my biology uh, bachelor's degree at Arizona State. I actually went to UC Berkeley for a few years in a uh, PhD program, passed my qualifying exam, and then decided this is not what I wanted. Um, but I was working in an insect physiology lab, so uh, I got a lot of ethology and neuroethology there. Uh, and when I decided to leave that program, it was to head off in the domestic animal realm. And I, at that point, I didn't really know of any graduate programs that were studying dogs the way I wanted to. Um, and I was still really new to the area, to that field. So I actually started working at a, a shelter in the Bay Area, and that's how I got my foot in the door um, into the behavior world, became a um, certified professional dog trainer, and then eventually went back to school at University of North Texas in behavior analysis, and then University of Florida for my PhD. Uh, that was in the Department of Psychology, but we had uh, a behavior analytic um, emphasis there, which I was in. And I kind of wrapped up my dissertation by my fourth year, but I, I wasn't ready to leave yet. And I, I um, thought, well, while I'm at it, I'm here with uh, Dr. Iwata and Dr. Vollmer, uh, who are really big names in our behavior analytic field and the human applied side. So I thought I might as well take advantage of their expertise. So my fifth year, while finishing writing my dissertation was largely dedicated to working in their human applied labs to get the hours for the um, BCBA. Amazing. So <laughs> just incredible. Wow. My idol, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, this is so cool. Um, so one of the things what I love about uh, why I'm so happy to have you on the show is I, I like to think of animal training as both an art and a science. Uh, and uh, you obviously are representing uh, the best of both worlds here, um, but you are doing uh, you you are doing a lot of or you're heading and you're 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 overseeing a lot of uh, original research, some new groundbreaking research in animal behavior and applied animal behavior. Uh, so, as a director of the uh, Applied Animal Behavior and Welfare Lab at Virginia Tech, can you? tell us how that all kind of came about and what it was like to develop that program that must have been very exciting yeah it is so after i graduated from florida i was really lucky to get a job as an assistant professor at carroll college in helena montana um, and there they have an anthrozoology program and i oversaw um, the dog side of that in which students fostered a shelter dog for a year and they trained them all year long coming to labs with me twice a week um, and I was really grateful for that. It was a lot of work. It was probably a job for two people rather than one person. Um, <laughs> but I'm still, as you mentioned, Freddie, really passionate about expanding our research knowledge and uh, the research base that our wonderful practitioners can draw from. So while I was there, I joked that my that research was my hobby, but I that was my hobby. <laughs> I continued to to do research in the summers after hours. Um, and uh, Dr. Lisa Gunter, who's now at Coastal Carolina, and I um, started working on some shelter welfare um, grants with Maddie's Fund, starting at Best Friends, then expanding out to other shelters. So I tried to keep my research program really active there, even though that was not part of my appointment. Um, and uh, I decided I, I needed, wanted something where uh, that research is a little more integrated into my into my daily duties rather than just something extra I was tacking on so I didn't burn myself out. Uh, and this job opened up at Virginia Tech. Um, 
And interestingly, my, my appointment is actually teaching an extension, which, you know, suits me really well because I love working with um, owners and shelters. And so getting to go out and do outreach is fantastic. Virginia Tech also has a very broad view of extension. So doing applied research that we then disseminate back to the folks that helped us and to others. Um, to them, that's extension. And that's exactly what I love doing is the applied research and dissemination. So when I came here, um, we already had sort of a campaigning animal undergraduate uh, emphasis. And that was developed by largely by Dr. Bergamasco, who's I'm really lucky to be a colleague with here. Um, and so I contributed to that, uh, and we're trying to develop that into bigger and better things. Um, but I then started doing, bringing my research interests here as well. Uh, so bringing in that shelter dog welfare, uh, dog learning. And since we are a land grant school, we're lucky enough to have a lot of animals on campus uh, like horses. And so we started doing some horse work as well. Uh, what I found is that our undergraduate students are just so eager for anything behavior and welfare. Um, companion animals is our largest uh, uh, contingent of students in the undergraduate program. Um, and within those, many want to go to vet school, but many are sort of rethinking that or are excited to see these other avenues like behavior and welfare that they could pursue and meaningfully partner and support animals. So, you know, it's it's uh, sometimes overwhelming because we have so many students that want to participate. It's a good it's a good problem to have. Yeah, yes, it um, is. But I we're trying to develop more and more opportunities for our undergraduates, uh, and then along the way, um, we've been increasing our graduate numbers. Um, so, I think I have five uh, in person graduate students right now, and we have uh, Dr. Andrew Cronus um, who specializes in cat behavior as a postdoc in our lab. So we're really thrilled with that. And then we've de I developed an online master's program uh, with behavior professionals in mind. And, and I think we'll talk more about that. But uh, it's a technically non-thesis program, but everybody, in my view, has to do a thesis. So everybody's doing research projects at a thesis level. Um, so they could be certified for um, cat, an ACAB through the Animal Behavior Society. So it's really fun overseeing all those projects um, and and trying to help students contribute back to the to the knowledge base that we rely on. Wow. So what? Yeah, the, I love that that research uh, aspect of it um, because it's it's all about learning more, right? Um, and uh, so, what were what were some of the initial goals uh, for that online uh, master's program? Uh, like, what skill sets did you? want the students to really learn and uh, you know, what did you want to cultivate in them? Yeah, so this um, uh, really came about, um, Lisa Gunter and I had been chatting about this for years and, and she helped uh, kind of guide our curriculum. Um, knowing that our field, that our field is so complex, behavior is so complex and so amazing and wonderful, uh, but there's really no centralized way to access a lot of this like scientific knowledge. Um, and currently practitioners are, you know, getting a seminar here and a workshop there um, and trying to piece it all together. And one of my goals was really to give those folks who are so interested and want more an academic means to do that, a cohesive program um, with experts that they could learn from um, and come out with, with a master's degree, but also to really professionalize our field. Uh, I think that's 
a constant frustration of mine is that uh, anyone who says they're a dog trainer can be a dog trainer. Um, and I think it is it does a disservice to the public and it certainly does a disservice to the animals that they're, we want to help when people who don't have the skills um, are, are doing that. Uh, and, and this is kind of a kind of an issue throughout psychology. And, and when we talk about pseudoscience, the damaging things that ineffective treatments can do, you end up using that owner's emotional resources, their financial resources on something that doesn't work. And then they are spent, right? They have nothing to apply to something that could work. And that's, I think, really unfortunate for them and their animals that they're trying to help. So one of my goals has been to give an opportunity, give a, um, a ladder for people to elevate themselves and have some academic standing, some scientific standing. And I'm hoping that that will kind of pull the whole, pull the whole field up eventually and that the expectations to work with animals in these settings will be higher than what we currently have. So, so many of your students, like you said, are already dedicated professionals who, you know, they go to seminars and courses and webinars and presentations and everything. And that was me before I decided to do a, a grad program, right? It's like, okay, you're piecing things together and like, ah, it's not all, it's, there's so many questions still. It's not, it's not all quite coming together in a cohesive way. So I'm really curious to know in the students that you have that came from a professional setting who were doing all of this work on their own, trying to make themselves actually science or evidence-based, what surprised you about the knowledge and skills that they already had entering the program? Like what were they already getting right? And where did they struggle the most? What were their biggest knowledge gaps? Um, and what are the biggest knowledge gaps that you see in training professionals generally trying to do their best to understand the science and, and be effective and evidence-based in their services? Yeah, so I mean, our, our students are just, they're really amazing and I learn a ton from them. They're really excellent practitioners. Um, and I think what they bring to our program is a, a solid, a pretty solid knowledge of sort of the basic quadrants. Um, also a sensitivity. Um, the ones we've been getting so far have, have shown a great sensitivity to the welfare of animals and a concern for the long and short term side effects of our training methods um, and really trying to do the best by the animals. And so I, I really love that, that that is their approach. Um, and then we can just fine tune it and fill in some of the blanks um, about what what drives behavior. So they come in incredibly knowledgeable about, like I said, the, the sort of the basics, um, lots of, of practical applications. Um, what I, I think I work on to develop with them is to really take a scientific mind to what they're being told from others, um, because there's a lot of training lore out there. Uh, and so we kind of, each, in some of my classes each week, we'll kind of take a training lore and kind of dive into it to see, like, is there any evidence that could support this? Um, where do we think they're getting this this from? There are so many statements in our field that are just stated very matter-of-factly, like, we know this to be true. <laughs> and when you look into it, there's no evidence behind that. It might be true, but we need the data to support that. Um, or there might be data that suggests that that is in fact not the case. Um, and, and so what I think we work on with our students a lot is to um, find those nuances in there, to not just 
take these blanket statements as truth, but actually look and see, well, in what context might that be true? What In what context, even if there's no data, in, co- in what context, based on what their knowledge of sort of basic principles, do we think that might not be true? Um, so for, for example, the one that comes to mind is uh, the statement, um, always end your training on a good note on a, and on a good behavior. And there's, you know, there's, there's no data behind that. And there, in fact, our knowledge of basic principles might suggest that that's not a great way to go. If, if we were using negative reinforcement as our primary reinforcer, then yes, I would want to end the session. That's probably not a ton of fun for our animals on a behavior that really, that I really liked, right? Like that horse picking up its lead change. Finally, I'll stop riding at that point. So they're like, whew, she's off my back. I don't have to work anymore. Next time she asks me for that lead change, hopefully they'll do it more frequently. But if we're using positive reinforcement and your dog does this amazing thing and they've hopefully been having a great time in your session because they're getting all these positive reinforcers. If you're like, that was an excellent behavior and we're quitting, we might be removing their, you know, their ability to access those reinforcers. It could function as a negative punisher for that behavior. So I think understanding um, those, thinking about those statements more critically under what conditions might it work? Under what conditions might it not work? Um, those are the sorts of things I hope our students take away. Um, and also an understanding of, of how little data there is, so sadly, behind, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, behind many of our procedures uh, and techniques. And I, I think that makes it really challenging to be data-based and evidence-based when we don't have that to support it to say this way of training even simple things like loose loose leash walking is more effective or is more effective for certain dogs this type of dog um or what are these little pieces that are critical to making that treatment package whatever it is really effective and what things are superfluous that we don't actually have to do we've been just doing them because it made us feel good um so i think an appreciation of that is also important for our students and i think they do come away with that of recognizing how much we know from basic principles and yet how little has been actually studied on the applications um, and hopefully a desire to contribute back to that. I think when people say that um, training is science-based, right? And this is pretty big in like the force-free community or positive reinforcement community, however you want to label them. I think what people are referring to are just like the quadrants, you know, and a few studies that show, I mean, not a few, like over and over again, but a few with dogs, you know, that show that punishment has negative fallout that we don't want. And they go, oh, look, positive reinforcement is um, evidence-based. And I I have a hard time with that because, you know, the principles of learning are happening all the time. So literally we're all quote unquote, using science-based techniques, right? Like it's, it's sort of like pointing to the theory of gravity and like holding your pen up and dropping it and being like, look, I'm using science. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things we go after is the folks that talk about behavior differently, say that the way they're training is different than this. One thing I want our students to do is still to break it down and say, okay, I see that you are trying to be lead mayor for your horse um, or have the horse join up. But what I see you doing is punishing this behavior and negatively reinforcing that behavior. It might be sloppily applied. It might be 
uh, or it might be well applied and very sloppily described. But you're right, it's not like they're using different principles. They're still using those same principles whether they acknowledge it or not. Um, and so may, maybe what when we say we're being science-based is that we are acknowledging like verbally that we're using those techniques, those principles, um, and by recognizing them, hopefully we're applying them more uh, consistently than, than other folks. Um, so yes, I, I do think that's um, that's a challenge for our, our field to identify what does that mean when we say we're science based. Yeah, I think um, I think if you go to any you know especially with dog training, you go to any dog trainer's website, uh, and frequently you'll see a dog trainer say, "I patented this new training technique." You know, and um, yeah, we're, and I think uh, there's some some of us who can look at the you know read what they're talking about and, and kind of see right through it and see exactly what it is. Um, but it's so easy to use language that convinces uh, you know your regular average pet owner. Yeah, yeah. To wow, this makes sense. Yeah, this this guy sounds really good. Um, so uh, I, I'm wondering, what do you think? are our best tools to to bring this science more readily available to the dog training community and to pet owners so that, you know, frankly, they can see through <laughs> stuff that where we're someone just really just making things up. Um, <laughs> so I'd like to know what you thought, think about that. Yeah, that that is such a big challenge for our field of everybody has their own name for what they do. Um, and it, it seems like then that there's no science behind it. There's no cohesive thread that's actually informing all of those. And, and I do wish that um, trainers would be maybe a little bit more upfront about that of saying, I'll call it this. And it uses the principles of positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement and extinction. Like I have these components. I believe I have these components in there um, so that, that lay folks, the regular owners could see it's just the same principles differently packaged. Maybe it's a really excellent package, right? They put them together in uh, a really effective strategy and a really effective chronological sequence, um, maybe better than other folks, but it's still a reliance on those basic principles. And, and I think that would really help move our science forward um, rather than, and not just our science, but our field um, that we are a science-based field. Uh, otherwise, it looks like it's all art and no science, right? Like, oh, I go to this person and they've got that technique and I can go to that person. It's totally different. Um, and it's just a different packaging of some of our, our principles and our understanding of behavior. Um, so I think as, as practitioners, I would like to hold people sort of accountable for that of tell mm -hmm. me tell me what's actually in your package. What do you think you're doing? Um so that it's not some magical thing that you have developed that is totally divorced from what we know about behavior. Um, I also think, you know, some of these books, uh, I think uh, uh, Dr. Todd's book on, um, you know, making your dog happy does a nice blend of, um, of basic principles, like showing how the principles that, uh, that, apply to us, apply to our dog. And, and, and um, same with some of Karen London's work. I, I think those sorts of books that tie together our basic principles and apply them 
show how they apply to us and to our dogs can be really useful as well. Um, I, I know that our language, our, especially our behavior analytic language, is sort of unfriendly to the lay owner. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so just coming in and saying, you know, we're going to, uh, I need you to give your discriminative stimulus now, and then you're going to deli deliver your positive reinforcer, right? No. <laughs> we're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> no, no, not at all. So, oh. so we do need to translate, and I think this is a challenge for anyone in the field, right? We have our, our scientific language. And I hope our students come out with that scientific language that they're able to converse with other scientists. But they then also have to translate to the owners and talk about, um, you know, maybe using friendlier words like cues and rewards and, you know, pepper in those other scientific words. We know we know from human work equivalents that we can learn equivalence relationships that this word means that word. Um, so I think mm -hmm. that's that's a way to do that. Um, but I think as as practitioners who say they are science based and evidence based, I would like them to at least put out there some of these basic principles that are being used in their protocols, um, just so other practitioners and certainly the other owners can see that that thread coming through of like, oh, where you, we are using the same the same principles. It's not something new. I think it's going to be harder with some of the um, um, trainers that use more aversive methods that are sometimes quite skilled at using euphemisms to cover up what's actually going on. Um, and and even in our field, right? Uh, people are are very hesitant to say that they're using any sort of positive punishment, um, which could be like leash pressure on a uh, on a no pull harness or negative reinforcement. Um, so I think that stigmatization of, um, certain quadrants also limits kind of our honesty, um, about things. And, and certainly I try and stay in the positive reinforcement quadrant, uh, knowing how, you know, the side effects that it produces much happier, engaged learners for me. Um, but I think we need to own up to when we are using those other quadrants, um, and hopefully we can then start to get others from other kind of training philosophies, maybe to do the same or at least put some pressure on them. But I, I do think this is a huge, a huge challenge for us. In terms of um, data, when we're talking about, you know, evidence-based training, which means we're making decisions based on data that we have, you know, evidence for. When, when a behavior analyst is, is talking about that, you know, which are considered scientific practitioners because they're taking data for each and every client and they're making decisions based on the data that they have for that individual, you know, behavior analysts are looking at what's the function, what's, what's going on here before they create a, a plan. Now, I think the thing that's difficult in the animal training world is that, and... I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I don't think that behavior analysis is enough. You need to know the ethology, the applied ethology, the welfare. You need to know all of those different perspectives. You need to understand group design so that you understand where kind of some of like big overarching claims are coming from and how that's going to influence your mm -hmm. training plan as well. So when we're talking about a trainer who is quote unquote evidence-based, 
are we talking about a trainer who takes data on their client and is making sure that their plan is function-based? Or are we talking about a trainer who understands ethology and wants to make sure that their their dog's needs are met, right? But both are important. So how do you mm-hmm. how do you define it? And in terms of curriculum, how did that get weaved together for you? Because there's just there's just so much that we have to know from so many different sciences and that's that's a big ask. <laughs> it can be a big ask. <laughs> It, it is. And, and I think that's exactly why, you know, our, so many practitioners do want more because they're like getting these threads of things. Right. And I, I will say that, um, you know, I, I know folks that have strictly gone through a behavior analytic program and I completely agree with you, Lauren, um, as much as I love behavior analysis, I'm so grateful to have my biological background. Um, and I forget sometimes that people don't have that perspective. And I think if you just get that behavior analytic perspective, um, you lose some of the dimensions, uh, some of the complexities out there. Um, and so I'm, like I said, I, I'm just really great, grateful that I had that background in biology and ethology beforehand and could weave those together and think about behavior analytic principles in relation to that. And and of course, they're not. we're not gonna find different answers. We might have different questions that we're asking, but we're all studying the same thing. So at some point, our knowledge of behavior analysis and our knowledge of ethology do they come together. you know have to yep. come together so yeah um and there and there's some like just fabulous some of my favorite papers are when they do that like there's this one looking at um generalization in chickens based on whether they uh, are given um different types of um poisoned frogs like if they were to eat a poison frog what does their general generalization curve look like and it actually ties into um, our ethological and evolutionary understanding of mimics. And it's, it's so those things are so great where you like take learning principles and see how they intersect with ethology and evolutionary principles. Um, I just think those are fabulous. So, so yes, I, I totally agree. I think students need more than just behavior analysis. And I do think this is where it's so challenging, right? You have to be an expert in ethology and an expert in behavior analysis and an expert in welfare, I think to do really well. And those are huge, diverse fields. And so to keep current in them is is certainly a challenge. Um, And I I do think it makes it challenging to be then evidence-based. If I were to define evidence-based, what I would hope is that they were taking individual data on their clients and making decisions based on what they see in that data so you're they're not just forging ahead saying this is what i do this is my recipe i'm just going to keep going um and and hopefully behavior will change at some point but i i would also want them to not only be taking data on the main behavior they're trying to change but also potential indicators of poor welfare um so I think I would like to see both of those, like what's happening to your main behavior? Are you actually impacting it at all? Impacting it in the way you hoped? And are you getting any side effects that you don't really want? Are you starting to see more signs of stress, more avoidance? Um, is the owner reporting other changes in, in behavior that um, they're unhappy about, that the dog's finding new solutions to the problem that they still don't like? Um, and I think maybe that gives us that whole view of 
how am I doing as a practitioner on changing the, the target behavior, but also is my practice uh, producing other things that I don't want, like poor welfare, um, fear, anxiety, uh, avoidance in my learner? If, if we talk about that, you know, the intersection between behavior analysis and welfare, which is kind of my, my super jam, I would love to bring up something a little controversial. Can we talk about Lima for a second? Least intrusive, sure. most, what is it again? Yeah, minimally yeah, aversive. Minimally aversive, um, yeah. So if we're looking at taking data for individual dogs, and we see that their behavior is maintained by negative reinforcement contingency, and then we look at the humane hierarchy or Lima design, um, which kind of takes you through the quote unquote ethical pathways for changing behavior. Those two things are at complete odds because your functional assessment is saying, hey, this dog is working for negative reinforcement and that's what you need to target. And your humane hierarchy or your Lima is saying, no, no, we need to work on other stuff first. We can't, we can't just directly target our negative reinforcement strategy. And the thing that's actually evidence-based is your functional assessment saying, Hey, you need to work on your negative reinforcement strategy. This is, this is the reinforcer that is working for your dog in this moment. And so we need to start there. And that doesn't correlate with, (laughs) with the ethical guidelines, um, set, set about by who, you know, humane hierarchy or Lima or, or whatnot. What's your opinion there, right? Should we always go back to the drawing board, start with classical conditioning? I know what my opinion is, but I would just love to hear about that from, from you in terms of the intersection between welfare <laughs> and um, a, applied function-based, evidence-based training mm-hmm. strategies. Yeah, no, I think that's great. You know, the Lima and Humane Hierarchy is trying to give us some structure, but again, there's there's so many more nuances. And I think, I think, you know, Dr. Friedman recognizes that too. You know, I, uh, it's hard to put all those nuances in and she's trying to give us like an initial guide. And I, I think she's interested in, you know, uh, maybe revising it and adding some additional nuances in there. Um, to me that, that humane hierarchy is maybe one where you're training up a behavior that doesn't currently exist that, that there is no substitute. You're not trying to substitute for another behavior in the animal's repertoire. You're just like, how am I gonna train a stay? Um, well, we'd like you to start with positive reinforcement, right? And, and everybody Gosh, should be so. able to train a stay with, <laughs> yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. I know when I see people go to other methods, I was like, really? Or a stay? You, you can't do this with, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of disappointing if you can't. Um, when certainly when we have behaviors that are currently occurring and we want to train up a substitute behavior through a differential reinforcement of alternative or incompatible or even other behavior i do think you know starting with that function we already know it's meaningful to the animal um you already have a reinforcer cert yes if if my dog is working to get me to stop grooming him um I would love it for my dog to want to be groomed, right? Uh, but in this situation, if I am try- if I need to groom um, and I'm trying to 
establish desirable behavior, then maybe I do use that negative reinforcement for a bit. And I think there are ways of using negative reinforcement in a shape in a nice splitting shaping procedure. The that animal does not can produce can succeed very easily is what is what you're saying. Yeah, you set up the procedure exactly. the animals winning all the time. Yeah, winning all the time. And uh, uh, we're never having to escalate the aversive contingency, anything like that. Um, yeah, they are just learning this behavior almost errorlessly. Um, I don't think we see a lot of emotional responding come out of that. Our learner might not choose to come get groomed still, but if, the, if we have to groom, um, we're not gonna get emotional responding. We're not gonna see fear or anxiety. And simultaneously, or after that, once I get my grooming done, maybe I do try and establish grooming as a more fun procedure for the dog and try and pair it with um, some appetitive stimuli like food or toys. Um, but I think those are two kind of two separate approaches. One is, yes, I would love for you to eventually like grooming or like other people. But in the meantime, I know it's meaningful for you to have these things stop. And if it's something that that I can't avoid, like I have to take my dog for a walk each day and he is gonna see people. Um, how can I at least give him behaviors that will you know, produce that escape from, from that other person? Is it moving away, further away from them, moving behind me? Um, and especially if it's not my dog, that will not, behaviors that will not incur punishment from the owner. So I think, you know, when I, when I think about how I want to train, it's trying to maximize reinforcement for my learner. Um, how can I train up behaviors that will not incur punishment from the public if the dog does it, like jumping, or from the owner if it's a client-owned dog? Um, so if, if I need to use negative reinforcement because that is currently what's valuable to the dog and we can quickly establish like a calm behavior as they walk past the other dog rather than barking and lunging that might incur some leash pops and corrections and yelling at the dog, um, then I think that's, that's better for our learner. Maybe eventually I can get that dog to like other dogs. I'm a little skeptical about that, <laughs> but uh, the, the power of our counter conditioning um, when there's a really aversive stimulus. Uh, but I do think we owe it to our animals to somehow really nicely establish a repertoire that gets them what they want and minimizes any punishment or any aversive, additional aversives they might experience. And some people I think would call that um, giving your dog agency, which is a really big mm -hmm. term right now, right? Choice, control, agency. And sometimes the fastest way to give your dog agency is by allowing them to remove things that they don't like or indicate to you, can you please remove that thing that I, that I don't like? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think we use negative reinforcement again, more than we acknowledge or admit more to. than we know. Yes. <laughs> even, even exactly. Even in our cooperative care with our start button behaviors of like, put your, put your head on or put, yeah, put your head on my, my hand and I'll do the procedure. If you take it off, I'll stop you stopping is negative reinforcement. We're using negative reinforcement to teach the animal they can escape this session if they if they want to. Um, so I think just acknowledging that we do use it, there are good and bad ways of applying it. Certainly, I don't want to apply 
more aversive than my animal already finds aversive in its natural environment. And I think that is one difference is, you know, when we talk about like the construction, constructional aggression treatment, things like that, um, that we are where they do use negative reinforcement, they are using uh, negative reinforcement with a stimulus that is already aversive to the animal that they have to encounter like another dog or a human. It is not that I'm applying this totally arbitrary aversive, like a shock or a leash pop. Um, it is using a, a naturally occurring aversive that I need to teach the animal how to handle better, give them a better behavioral strategy for, for dealing with that aversive and how to avoid with it. With cat, I always say, if you are exposing the dog to more of an aversive than you would in a classical conditioning program, you're doing it incorrectly. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I think in all of those, we can, um, keep it at very low levels, very low levels. Yeah. Sub threshold and the animal can still start to learn a new response, um, that will hopefully one, not incur punishment from the owner because it's no longer lunging and barking at the end of the leash, but it's also likely going to get that animal more reinforcement opportunities because if you, you don't have a dog that's lunging and barking on the leash all the time, you're more likely to take them for walks. You're more likely to take them to different fun, enriching, reinforcing locations. Um, so yes, you might use that naturally occurring aversive in a really lovely shaping procedure, keeping it sub-threshold. And eventually if we train that up, our animal can then access even more reinforcement on the on the other end of that now a minute ago you said you're not sure if using reinforcement could ever result in the animal liking that stimuli but i know kelly and and jesus have have come to different conclusions that they see a quote-unquote switchover effect where the previously aversive dog becomes a fun friend which is amazing um yeah what do what's your opinion on that and do you have a theory of why and how that happens. Yeah, I, I was more talking about Pavlovian counter conditioning. Ah, yes, yes. I don't know that we get very far with that. With and in fact, when you d- dig into the data, um, there is, first of all, there's there's been nothing looked at in, in applied settings with dogs, right? To see how much is straight Pavlovian counter conditioning of like, you see that dog and I'm giving you cream cheese, actually change the dog's feeling. Right or behavior towards that. Um, And even in our basic literature, uh, some of the papers that are in there suggest that teaching an alternative operant response is what is actually um, happening. Yeah, becomes more (laughs) effective uh, for that. Um, And so I think that's really interesting, because we we talk about this desensitization, this is one thing that, you know, my my students go through and, and, I feel like I rattle them a little bit, and I'm very sorry about that if I rattle their confidence in, in our procedures. Uh, but we talk about desensitization and counter conditioning that we actually don't know what's going on in that. There might be some habituation, there might be some Pavlovian counter conditioning. We might be getting some operant counter conditioning, which is essentially training up an alternative response. Um, and, and in fact, some of the uh, data for desensitization and counter conditioning, when it's most effective, you know. We, you see the, the dog that's aversive to your dog and you give him cream cheese. And some of the basic literature suggests that what might actually be happening is not that you are 
counter conditioning of the dog's like, oh my gosh, that dog is like cream cheese now. It's so good. It's that the cream cheese keeps your dog in position long enough to undergo Pavlovian extinction towards that other dog, which nobody wants to talk about either, right? Um, no, nobody wants to use the word extinction. Um, I, I think a lot and, of dog so trainers don't even just... know that there is Pavlovian extinction, that, that that's a concept yeah, that exists. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and so I think recognizing in that of how little we know about what's going on, and it might be different for different animals and different settings and different behaviors, um, and we don't have any data to say how effective are those different techniques. Um, in terms of Kelly and and uh, Jesus's work, I suspect maybe something like that is going on. Maybe there is some Pavlovian extinction that's going on, that the more I see this stimulus and it goes away, um, maybe any conditioned aversive qualities uh, go on extinction and, and the stimulus now becomes more neutral maybe back to its original state where if this dog has had some social behavior with puppies or dogs, you know, in the past, hopefully it was as a puppy in its litter, um, we, we start to see those behaviors emerge. It's also possible that um, uh, I think there are, are behaviors that interfere with other behaviors, right? So if if uh, asked to go to a large party, I will avoid it, um, right? And if you force me, I might <laughs> I might show a lot of reactivity and unpleasant behavior. Um, if you were to get me over that of the asking and getting there, and you gave me the skills to interact with people better than I have, um, I might actually really enjoy it. Uh, so I I think that mm -hmm. that. Uh, there might be some, you know, something that the animal would enjoy about that dog interacting with, and it is a positive reinforcer, but it's currently masked by um, all these aversive contingencies of, is that what is that dog going to do when it comes up to me? Um, am I going to have to defend myself? Um, all those things. And so it could be that as we, we break that away, we finally get down to this nugget of, oh yeah, it is a social dog. It just has all these the approach, the meeting, all these things are so uncertain that they're aversive to them. And if we get past that, um, then we can see that social positive, positively reinforced behavior. Yeah, so many, I feel so many of them, they, they lack the skills mm -hmm. and uh, it's teaching them those skills. I'd like to uh, just ask you a little bit about something you said before about um, rattling your students' confidence in desensitization counter conditioning or anything else. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, I think that's a point, right, to, to question, continually question what we think we know, because um, yeah. th that's the, really, that's the only way we can really keep advancing our knowledge, because uh, we can do this counter conditioning. I mean, like, I, I know, like, when I first started, that's, that was like, all I ever did. That's all I did, all I did. Right. And, um, and, you know, the more experienced, the more uh, comfortable you become uh, uh, at working with animals and teaching new skills, you, you start to see there, there is more to it, just like you're saying there. Um, so I think that's so, so important for those uh, for your students and for anyone out there who are practitioners and working in this field. Yeah, I, I think so, be, especially because that is thrown a, around so much as a thing. And I work, um, you know, one of the first things we do is talk about it as it's not a principle. There is no principle of desensitization. It is a procedure in which we use different principles, like maybe habituation, maybe Pavlovian extinction, maybe operant counter conditioning. 
Um, but I think the way it is used, unfortunately, in our field is that it is um, it is something uh, that it's a basic fundamental principle that they're using and then kind of saying, actually, no, this is a technique that uses these other principles that we actually don't know what's going on yet um, is, I think, uh, like what, like I said before, a little rattling, right? Because it, it's used so differently in our field um, that it's like, okay, well, what else don't I don't do I not know if, <laughs> if that's wrong? <laughs> um, but then you're right. That's the only way we we make progress is um, to figure out like where where are our holes, um, what don't we know, and and how can we start to address those? Um, I had seen a quote yesterday from. Niels Bohr, something along the lines of, oh, we've run across a paradox. Isn't this great? Now we can make real progress. And and I think it's sort of the same for us, right? Like when we figure out what we don't know, then we can start to work to fill that in and, and learn more about it. Great. Uh, Lauren, do you have one more quick question um, before we sign off? All right. In 30 seconds or less, how do you feel about regulations for the dog training industry? And if you believe in regulation in some capacity, what about licensing? What would that look like if done well? <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> yeah, that's a quick question. <laughs> uh, I, I do. I mean, I think it needs to be done carefully with the right criteria uh, and the right oversight. Um, so if it's done sloppily, um, it's not going to have much of an effect that we want. Um, if it's just pay your money and you get your license, uh, and there's no ethics review board, there are no, um, uh, ethical guidelines to follow. We're not going to get very far. Um, but I, I do think it, if we do it correctly, hopefully it will be useful. I know there's pushback within the community, but I, I don't think our current model is working. I think we, there's so many animals that are being harmed um, by folks that have no business training um, that we owe it to the animals to, to make our lives a little difficult and try and figure out the right way to do licensure. You know, one of the reasons I was so excited to see your program come to fruition is because I don't see a way for our field to provide consistent, higher quality care without high quality educational opportunities. Even if you do go to grad school, it's still hard to get a well-rounded education that covers all of the relevant sciences. And you took one of my personal career goals to build a program that puts it all together in one place, and you did it. In my perspective, your graduate program is a model for future programs because we need access to education before we can even think about licensing and regulation. Is this something that you had in mind as a goal when creating the program? <laughs> yeah, that that was absolutely something that that was top in our minds of, you know, if we, if we are expecting our practitioners to have a certain level of knowledge, um, a certain ethical standard, just like our animals, we can't expect them to do that if we don't give them uh a way to access that, right? I can't expect you to do this if I'm not going to teach you how to do it, give you an avenue to access those that knowledge, those those um, that information. Um, so yes, I, I it was like I kept you know going back, like are we putting the cart before the horse? But I do really think, as you said, Lauren, that we have to create these programs where people can come out and say, I have a master's in this, 
um, and I've gotten, you know, ethology and behavior analysis. Um, and then I'm hoping it'll kind of bleed backwards into undergraduate programs where undergraduates can come out and maybe they're not as, as in-depth as the masters, but they can come out with an understanding of behavior and how it's influenced by um, phylogeny and ontogeny and current conditions and, and ethical guidelines on how to work with animals. So yeah, I'm kind of like, let's build this. My hope is that it trickles backwards into undergraduate or community college programs. Um, and that when we have that, then we then we can start to say to people, you need, you know, this sort of academic qualification. Um, uh, there are avenues to get it, um, but you can't put that on them if there's if there's no way to get it. So um, I'm I'm am hoping that this kind of pushes our field forward. Um, you know, I I compare us to the medical field or to the human psychology field. Um, there are certainly people that do really well with children, right? Really fantastic work, but we don't let them be psychologists until they still get that academic background. Um, and I, I don't know why we don't necessarily do that with animals either. It's so, behavior is not any less complex in our animals than humans. Um, so I, I really think that, you know, giving these practitioners that academic standing, those critical thinking skills, hopefully getting more people contributing to our, our literature um, is the way to push our field forward. And then when we have those professional um, standards, people can go, oh, I can go to this school or that school or that school and access them. That's oh, great. I well, thank you, right? That's uh, building that foundation. You're doing such important work there. And, and hopefully, uh, as you're seeing, you have a lot of students that are very interested in this. And uh, I certainly see it all the time um, that we are you know, building something that's going to improve animal welfare um, out there for all of us, That's uh, for everyone out there. Um, so, uh, uh, unfortunately, this is time to, uh, we're going to have to uh, wrap up, and uh, thank you so much for such interesting conversation today. It's, uh, really, it's, it's been great, and uh, Lauren, thank you for uh, being a co-host with me today. I really enjoyed this whole experience. No, Ferdy. Thank you for letting me come on here and talk with one of my absolute heroes in our dog industry. I have to apologize for everyone for fangirling in the beginning there. <laughs> I was so excited. How is this my job? And let's do this again. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do this more. Um, so for other listeners out there, uh, if you're interested in hearing uh, more from Dr. Feuerbacher, uh, we we actually or we have some new um, members only content, uh, and uh, you can uh, check us out at Behavior Vets to find out how you can access that. Um, but until then, we will see you um, at our next uh, episode. Okay, so thank you all, and we'll see you there. And thank you, Dr. Uh, Feuerbacher. Thank you for being such a great guest today. Thanks for having me. It's so much fun, and it, it was very nice to have Lauren on, having someone that has a behavior analytic background too. And great talking to you, Ferdy. Thank you. Oh, well, where can people find you? <laughs> oh my God, we, we didn't even we'll just that we'll just, we'll just keep pockets. we will well, just keep talking forever, um, and that's my <laughs> fault because I'm obsessed with you. Um, where can people find you? How do they apply to your program? Um, any other information oh, yeah, about the program perfect. you want people yeah. to know? All of, yeah, all of that cool. sort of stuff before you sign off. 
before Perfect, I before I you. let you sign off. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, our lab does have a Facebook page. It's Applied Animal Behavior and Welfare at Virginia Tech. I think it's facebook.com backslash AAB for Applied Animal Behavior, VT for Virginia Tech. Um, it's it's uh, sporadically maintained when we have news, we post it, um, but you can find out information there. Um, I've sent links uh, that I think you'll post about our, our online yes, master's program um, yes. for OMALS. But if you were to search on OMALS, O-M-A-L-S, at Virginia Tech, it would come up. We have eight different concentrations. Applied animal behavior and welfare is one of them. Um, uh, so you can find that on the website. And of course, you're always welcome to email me at ENF, so Erica Nan Feuerbacher at 007, sorry, put the at before, ENF007 at vt.edu. So feel free to email me. Um, I'm happy to point you in the right direction if you can't find the information online that you want. And that's ENF007 for our listeners, just to be clear. It is. Yeah. You know, people yeah. laugh at that. I, when I was picking, so you had to pick this called PID. It's like personal ID or something. And I thought it was just going to be sort of internal. I didn't realize it was going to be associated with my, it, it was going to be my email, email address. <laughs> yeah. And I had been given when I was at UNT, um, that I would just assign ENF 007. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And so it was burned into my brain. And so I'm like, I'll just, I'll just use that. And then it turns out it's my email and I'm not mm. even a James Bond fan. So <laughs> fine. you're the, you're there the you 007 of our world. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Thanks. Great. <laughs> All right. Cool. Cool. Um, thank you so much again, Erica, for your, your time. Um, and thank you, Lauren. And uh, we'll we'll talk soon, I guess. Yeah, awesome. Thank you both. It's so much Thanks, fun. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> hey, animal lovers! Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed what you heard and like to learn more, please follow us on Facebook or visit www.behaviorvet.com. We have much more cool stuff for you if you'd like to keep geeking out on companion animal behavior with the Behavior Vets team. Come back soon and join us on our journey to make life better for the animals in your life. Thanks again for listening. Remember to have hope because real change is possible and we can achieve it together. Enjoy our podcast, but this is a reminder that the contents of this podcast are for educational and entertainment purposes only. The comments and advice are never intended to be a substitute for seeing a behavior professional or a credentialed veterinarian in person. While the content is always intended to help people receive the best possible behavior support for their pets, any information you utilize from this podcast is at your own risk.